for May 3rd, 2021. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 670. I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are watching the big theatrical blockbusters, when we are sitting in the dark, shoulder to shoulder with other cinema lovers, and just reacting to the pictures and sounds that come off the screen, screaming off the screen, uh, right into our eye holes. And uh, we still have not done that yet, but uh, it's the next best thing. It's an Overthinking It podcast. I'm Matt Rather. Uh, with me, as always, is Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And with us, hey, as a special treat, it's Mr. Mark Lee. Hey, Mark. Hey, it's so great to be back. I have gone through many great links. I went through a time machine whirly hole and traveled backward through time. Oh, to- traveled? Travel backwards Travel through time. Yes, yes. To, to to join you in this momentum momentous occasion. How did and make you sure know? The podcast could proceed. How did you know that that would be an appropriate conveyance for the podcast that we are about to do? Did did it did did posterity tell you? <laughs> yes, I, I I I gave myself a voice message from the past that told me exactly where to be. Oh God the 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 greatest voicemail from the past is in Twelve Monkeys. Merry Christmas. <laughs> But let's uh, let's let's dive in. Look, uh, the the three of us have all had a vaccine, uh, have had COVID vaccine. You know, we're we're facing a summer where things are opening up and there is some hope and excitement um, about the possibility of getting back out to movie theaters in order to see things on on the big screen in a way that we actually like, despite my kind of sarcastic talking about it earlier. And, uh, and this is, this is exciting. I'll, you know, I'll just say, I'll go down a, a tiny rat hole to say that, um, you know, there is one film that we're more excited about than any. You, you might say we're nine times as excited about, uh, one film, um, than any. And, uh, I would say that as regards going to see this film later in the summer, we won't do it as friends. Will we, Pete? Do it as family. That's very exciting, and uh, <laughs> I'm 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 really stoked. I actually I may not go out to the theaters. I know that like as a promo thing for this film, they're playing every Fast and Furious movie like one a week for free on Fridays in theaters. I'm not quite ready because I am not out of my my you know second shot window yet. But um, I may see some of the later ones, and and I'm not totally averse to doing a uh to doing a rewatch just a little film festival on my own um here in the you know here in the comfort of of home and i'm not averse to you know making some content for over cont- content for overthinking it uh about it but very very excited we will know that the world has healed when um you know when vin diesel is is back on the screen with american muscle <laughs> So, so, um, so, hey, uh, at the very beginning of this, when, when everything shot, shut down, one of the things that we did not get to see was Christopher Nolan's Tenet. 
Uh, and that, you know, was a big hyped movie. We all knew it was coming for months and months beforehand. It was, you know, going to be one of those kind of obligatory things. As in the Catholic Church, there are holy days of obligation. This was going to be an opening <laughs> night of obligation for the, you know, or an opening weekend of obligation, I guess, for the three of us. And, uh, we did not get the, get the opportunity. You know, a, um, uh, a number of things happened. You might, you might recall the international pandemic that, uh, that struck the world. You might recall the very nasty things that Christopher Nolan said about HBO Max. Uh, you might recall any of that, all of that stuff. But now, <laughs> jokes on you, Chris, cause Tenet is streaming on HBO Max for non-premium prices. And, uh, just as you intended, we can watch it, you know, compressed. And uh, downsampled to 1080, and probably you know your wide color gamut crushed into the you know the the whatever a, a consumer television can handle, and your beautiful surround sound you know playing through tinny Bluetooth speakers so as not to wake the baby. Like we're we're, we're we won, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> We, we and we well, all okay. we always had one. We always had one. Nolan, it's already right. happened. You know, it, it could have shown on Peloton, okay, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> at least it made it to HBO Max. There's a there's a phenomenon called misattribution of arousal, where like, if you're in the gym, you're like likely to fall in love or think you you're have, you'll you have fallen in love because the. Uh, symptoms, the kind of the physical manifestations of like being excited about, uh, you know, and, and attracted to someone, heightened heart rate, certain like blood chemistry type of things, hormones and whatnot are similar to the, um, to the, uh, symptoms of working out, not symptoms, you know what I mean? To the after effects of working out within your body physiologically. And I'm, I'm not sure that this would work, but it's worth a try. I wonder if you were on a stationary bike riding and watching a movie because your heart rate was elevated, because certain things as regards like whatever adrenaline and dopamine and, you know, whatever the kind of complicated cocktail of hormones are, I wonder if it would make movies better to watch them uh, while you're running on a treadmill or, or riding on a stationary bike or something like that. This argument isn't that far from uh, why people like Christopher Nolan praise the theatrical experience so much, right? You're in the dark, people around you, the sound is good, it rumbles, it's big, the screen is enormous, and therefore, like, you know, all, all of your senses are heightened and you enjoy a spectacle like a Christopher Nolan movie um, more completely in that setting. It does, I mean... It dates me a little bit to say so, but I've had this experience with a little television show called Deal or No Deal, which is really a lot more exciting to watch when you're on like an elliptical or a treadmill. Uh, that, and it's about the amount of television related storytelling content that I find easy to absorb while doing a genuine workout on an elliptical or a treadmill. I have, um, yeah, I have Pete at the, at the gym that I go to and that they're charging me again for, though I have no intention of going anywhere near there. They have, you know, Netflix and Hulu and things like that, but you have to log okay. in with your own username and password on one of those God awful touch screens. You have to be able to like put in the, like, and I'm not even sure how to do like a parenthesis or an underscore on one of those, <laughs> on one of those screens, but like, 
like, yeah, I, I, uh, I would definitely, I definitely think that person of interest would be, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful sort of procedural action show to, to get in like a, a 40 minute run, 45 minute well, run. Well, like. Speaking of ideal circumstances for watching movies and also heightened sensory experiences, um, Pete, I believe like you really checked out both of those boxes with the way you watch Tenet, right? Oh, yeah. So we, we're talking about the movie Tenet, which we watched, right? We did, That's yes. Sorry, yes, was yes. That, did, I not, did I not quite <laughs> land that plane? I think we sort of t- – I didn't want to say – I didn't want to plug – I wanted to plug a new streaming service, not for money, but just for fun. Before we move off the topic of watching things on your Peloton, there is a new streaming service out there, which I was notified of through a catalog that was mailed to my house. Um, if you've been waiting for it, it's here. Uh, you can now subscribe – for a mere ten dollars a month or ninety nine dollars a year to Townsend's Plus, and I know what you're thinking. Townsend's has a streaming service. Wait, what is? And that? you might be thinking, who's Townsend's? What were you thinking, Matt? <laughs> who's Townsend's? What is? I, I was uh, not who, aware who of Townsend's. Who is Townsend's? Only, what is Townsend's? Only, what, Pete, when is Townsend's? Only the best Indiana-based Revolutionary War era reenactment clothing and good manufacturer. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, The makers of 18th century cooking, which is a great Ah. YouTube series about going through actual recipes for primary sources from 18th century cookbooks. I I ordered a bunch of masks from them because they repurposed the seamstresses. And I'm calling them that for because I think that's sort of how they refer to it or (laughs) such like they're they're weavers who generally work on their uh, old timey. Uh, doublets and like puffy shirts that they sell were repurposed to making masks at the beginning of the pandemic. They're period appropriate. Yeah. And you can, <laughs> I mean, you, before COVID. Amazing. you could buy fabric from them. You could buy outfits from them. You could buy cookbooks and primary sources from them. And you could buy all sorts of blacksmithery, including period appropriate axes and cookware. Um, but they also have now, their own streaming service called <laughs> Plus, which you should, which watching on a Peloton is like, it's like Tenet because one part of you is going forward in time and one part of you is going backward in time at the same time. And you intersect. It's like a temporal pincer on the present day. So <laughs> that's uh Oh wow. That's yeah. That's incredible. I, I, I don't know. God, it's, it's really interesting to think of how people position that this may be a little inside baseball, but to think of how people position these things, right? Because one way of doing it is sort of what we do. Like we don't operate a streaming service. We don't conceive of it that way. It's, it's just extra podcasts and stuff that you get if you become a member of overthinking it. This is similar to like the Patreon model, you know, where it's, uh, it's on a, on a platform, but uh, conceiving of it as a separate service is, interesting and has some implications yeah yeah for sure for sure one is that you need to maintain a technology platform all on your own but i'm sure as a bunch of you know historically uh reenacting weavers they're up to the task well you can also you can watch such original series on townsend's plus as john reads to you uh which is the name of a show, which is great. Backwoods Blacksmith, which is totally something that should be on Netflix. Historic Strings with Hillary and Rick, uh, the picture of which is just delightful. And uh, My First Trade. And, of course, The Nutmeg Academy from the Nutmeg Tavern, where they talk about uh, cooking and historical reenactment. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, um, 
speaking of history that is, uh, you know, history and a future that has already happened, let's let's dive into Tenet. I don't know if if people saw Tenet. I felt like the like the response was muted. It certainly didn't set the culture on fire, even the way that like. I don't know what was before Tenet, um, Dunkirk. Dunk- Dunkirk, yeah. yeah. Was uh, did I, I feel like really kind of got into the culture more, and it's not uh, maybe it's because of the pandemic, but you know what? Plenty of movies like really made an impact in the pandemic. Um, so you know there there has to be something about it that that maybe didn't didn't hit didn't fire on all on all temporal cylinders there, but um, Tenet is a time travel movie. It's a uh, it's a pew 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 uh, movie, uh, as we say in my house, where the the guns go pew pew pew. Except uh, some of it happens backwards in time, so it is both a pew 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 and a whoop 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 <laughs> movie. <laughs> Um, and the, the main innovation from a, a kind of time travel storytelling perspective of Tenet is that you have to go, you have to take the long way around, as Peter Capaldi says in, uh, the episode, as the doctor in the episode of Doctor Who, where he, uh, he travels to the end of time or something. Sorry, spoiler alert for Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> happens like 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good point. And then he fights the Daleks. Um, the uh, who will win? <laughs> I ext- wait with bated breath. Exterminate. Um, that that uh, you have to take the long way around, right? Like that the the time travel you can you know by by the aid of a particular MacGuffin, um, you will uh, uh, you will invert yourself is the the nomenclature that they use in the film, and you will be traveling backwards through time. And there is a sort of scientific explanation of this having to do with entropy and stuff like that. But it's you know forward through time and backwards through time. And the the we should observe Looper rules talking about the specific science and like uh, eh, don't worry about it too much. Um, say, don't don't overthink it, Matt. <laughs> I mean, there are good ways. There are good ways to overthink it, but uh, you know, I don't know. Um, c- complaining that the uh, complaining that the central conceit of the movie is so not realistic is uh, is you know maybe not the the most entertaining conversation we could have about it. Let me let me put it that way. Um, so that that this this is kind of interesting because it creates. Uh, a couple of things. There are a couple of knock-on effects from this way of storytelling, right? That that one, um, you have to travel at one time speed. There's no fat, you know. There's no fast forward. There's no like seek on this. It's a it is a reel to reel tape recorder model of time, and not a CD tape recorder model of time where you can skip to the particular the particular track that you want. Um, the other thing is that not that every move through time creates not two copies of yourself, Marty McFly style, but three copies of yourself uh, in a given time, right? So if I were to invert myself today, go back to, uh, you know, Friday, you know, and then come back uh, to to the present, you know, and reinvert, revert myself, I guess is what they say, and come back to the present. On Saturday, throughout the weekend, there would be two copies of me, which is a wish that I've had on on many a weekend as my busy social sc- schedule post COVID heats up. I I am sure I will long for the the technology to have three copies of this, one going backwards, so that I can savor every moment of the the very best parties. Um, 
that I go to. Now, there's a MacGuffin involving uh, something referred to as the algorithm, and the good guys have to get the algorithm and keep the algorithm out of the hands of the bad guys. It's a MacGuffin. None of that matters, uh, right? And it's not, not, none of it is, it's consequential to the, uh, to the plot of the movie, but I would argue not terribly consequential to, you know, the things about the movie that are, um, that are successful. And, you know, I don't know. There are, there are a couple. Anyway, I, do you feel like my guys, do you feel like my, you know, intentionally, um, elided summary is fair? Or do you want to add anything, read anything else into the record at this point? Well, I mean, it sounds like that's certainly the the summary of the movie that emerges from the log line, right? From the tagline or the description of this movie is that it's time travel with this convention and, and where you're going this way and you're going that way. And there's things that are going backwards. I think the main occasion for the movie is to film things that are going backwards and forwards at the same time and kind mm-hmm. of construct these physics experiences. Uh but I mean, it's not really the plot of the movie, I guess, in this in a basic. I don't know, Matt, you'd stop me. Uh, you stop me here. If, if if I may, if I may, I Matt may a bit. Please okay, okay. do. All right. So I'm glad we waited this long. I'm glad we waited this long to watch Tenet first, because I find it to be the Lego Batman movie of 2020, which I'll address later. Uh, but and two. Um, because we got to see another movie that has been super influential on Tenet. At least it seems to me as such, to a creepy degree. Mm. Maybe unintentional, but to a creepy degree, this movie is it seems very specifically influential on Tenet. And in fact, you know, I think watching Tenet, you might think, well, it's so long. It's such a rich tapestry. It really kind of feels like three movies put together into one movie, maybe even like a full series, right? And I don't think you would be wrong, but let, let me let me conjure some of the events that take place in that first act of Tenet. And, and Matt, maybe you can tell me if there's a film that comes to mind that we might have talked about on the podcast recently that seems to correspond like roughly with what's going on. Oh, I'm, okay? I'm terrible. I'm terrible at this game, Pete, but I will do my best. I will. I will and, give it the old college try. And Mark, you I think this is this we have seen this since you went on leave. But if you've been keeping up with the podcast, maybe you'll recognize it as well. OK, Okay. all right. So so there is this black agent of like in case law enforcement, intelligence, whatever. He's like a, he's risen from a modest upbringing, which he refers to a bunch of times to the top of his field. Right. And and in this occasion, he gets involved in this horrible botch. Right. Something just goes terribly wrong. And some people very close to him die. Mm. And he is not really satisfied with the explanations that are apparent for like why all this happened. Uh, he, in, in, in sort of conversations around this, is spirited away to a realm of privilege and power and resource, right? Where he is involved in, in a not entirely clear way with this larger case that involves this thing he was previously involved in. Um, in this case, he has to masquerade 
as a variety of different people, uh, including, you know, oh, he can't get into a certain place because he's not wearing fancy enough clothes or like, oh, he has to go to a really fancy restaurant and he has to have an awkward conversation where he's standing and the other guy's sitting and he doesn't get any food and he gets thrown out of the restaurant and, you know, and, and stuff ensues. Right. And and it sort of he gets a partner. Right. Who's this is a black guy and he gets a partner who's a white guy who's like a little bit more like uh, he looks a little bit more. Um, you know, posh side of the boat, you know, like like uh, a little more a little schmancy pantsy um, who he teams up with. And uh, and and that guy, you know, you don't really trust him at first, but like he seems to grow on you until eventually there is a uh, he meets this art gallery expert. Right. Who has some sort of like re- romantic or pseudo romantic relationship with this big time criminal. Right. Um, and the big time criminal is using the art operation, right, uh, to access a customs house where it seems like he's shipping art objects, right, potentially shipping art objects. But really, he's shipping contraband and he's using the common use of this art you know, this sort of customs house, this intermediary customs house to store his contraband between when it kind of comes in and out of the country. Right. And, and it's sort of like maybe he's an art smuggler. Uh, right. But actually, he's a smuggler of something that's much worse. And there's this weird kind of anti heist where the law enforcement people have to go into the into the uh, the art into the art customs house and kind of reverse steal the things that have already been stolen. Right. Um, and and, uh, and so that's the first and that kind of wraps up the first the first story. Now, now, Matt, is there a movie that that reminds you of? Mark, is that a movie that reminds you of? Well, uh, yes, Pete. And and I'll just say uh, when the when the um, the two agents together go return for the second time to the art uh, facility, to the customs house, as you're saying. They are offered a cup of coffee, and the a black oh agent who you're talking about says, "I'll have an espresso." It's it's so crazy. I'm getting chills. It's so he has to have done it. How right? could he not know? How could he not know this? How could look? We all knew. We all wanted. I think back all the way back to when Batman Begins first came out. We were thinking. When is Christopher Nolan going to make his Beverly Hills Cop? Right. And he <laughs> Beverly, number, Beverly Hills Cop one because, uh, yes, <laughs> you because know. it goes on. The number of superficial similarities between Tenet and Beverly Hills Cop <laughs> strains credulity. Like there are no bananas in tailpipes, but it strains credulity, right? I'll even go on to the next section, right? Because the second act of the movie kind of has a bunch of uh, comparisons to Beverly Hills Cop 2. Which is about a bunch of Eastern European arms dealers, right? Yep. Who are, of course, have to be infiltrated by the same agent, right? Who masquerades as a as a plutonium transporter in order to get involved with them, right? So, like, the, I mean, the number of similarities it's 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 absolutely it's absolutely mind boggling, right? Um, again, arms dealer, but not really an arms dealer. He's actually doing something worse, right? And and okay, the black guy has to get involved in it. And there's this woman who's kind of connected to the bad guy, who's kind of mysterious. And 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 but the whole there's a scene of Axel Foley in Beverly Hills Cop Two uh, carrying a paper bag full of plutonium, special plutonium bullets, I believe it is, <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, to, and to get past a receptionist so that he can go talk to the bad guy. 
um, which is which is bonkers, right? That there's these levels of similarity. I think there were even a couple of more similarities in Beverly Hills Cop Three, uh, Beverly Hills Cop Two, Beverly Hills Cop Three. The third act, though, transports this whole thing. Right? There's a situation where there's uh, where he has an opportunity to kill a murderer, right? But he is told they can't do it by the authorities, right? Mm. The authorities are like, no, 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 you can't kill this guy. There's a larger case that this involves, and it's going to require you to go to a special mission to this crazy facility that's run by this big-time criminal. In the case of Beverly Hills Cop 3, it's an amusement park, right? Yep. Rather than in the case of Tenet, in which case it's like a, what is it, a mine? It's or like, like a nuclear testing site. Yeah, I exactly, think. exactly. So, so the movie kind of bifurcates where the black agent goes to the, the, the testing site or the amusement park and his like white female associate is going to deal directly with the bad guy and there's like a simultaneous action sequence in which she kills the big bad guy at the same time that axel foley is fighting the bad guys at the amusement park like <laughs> uh, i i just i just i just don't under i mean i know that there's a lot of differences it's not exactly the same right but it's like um there's there's just there's oh i remember what it is it's that like he finds he there's a there's it's the alphabet killings because there's like a weird code right that's associated <laughs> with these murders and there's like letters that are written on stolen paper right uh and so he has to sort of piece together the pieces of this like strange esoteric kind of cryptological puzzle at the same time as he's fighting the bad guys and and his uh his associate is going to is going to fight the uh, the big bad guys. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like so. OK, so you take all three Beverly Hills Cop movies and you take away like every ounce of joy or humor <laughs> <laughs> that is in any of them. Right. Like every line is it's like we talked a lot about Axel Foley when we talked about Beverly Hills Cop. And about how Beverly, how Axel Foley is a Shakespearean sort of figure in that, like all of his emotions are expressed, you know, really strongly in his language as well as his comportment. Right, even when he's in disguise, he's telling you what he really thinks about the situation. He's making lots of jokes of it. Whereas, like, you know, protagonist from Tenet, right, tells you only what is happening, right. Like only what is happening mirthlessly without a do without a without a touch of cleverness. Right. Without. And like when he's in disguise, he's not. I mean, he's called out as being terrible at being in disguise because he doesn't have any he doesn't imbue his disguises with any personality. Right. He, in fact, Axel Foley walks into a room in the same T-shirt that he's been wearing for the entire movie as the fourth fake character in the same T-shirt. And people totally buy it. But protagonist from Tenet walks into a room in a custom suit that he's made just for the occasion. And everybody's like, well, yeah, you dress like this, but you don't behave like you belong here. Uh. Right. So this is like this is the anti Beverly Hills cop. Now, again, there is some racial coding in what I've said, and I don't want to go too deeply into that because I'm sensitive about its sensitivity. But like. I don't I mean, it's not it's not the fact that he's black. That is the biggest coincidence. I mean, the biggest coincidence is probably the like art customs house, which is like a very specific sort of thing that I've only really ever heard about twice. Once in Beverly Hills Cop and once in Tenet. Right. And uh, which is just so specific. Uh, but the espresso, because that's that whole thing of Beverly Hills Cop where he like Bronson Pinchot is the espresso machine. Yeah, right? you, like, you want you want an espresso, a cappuccino? <laughs> And we talked about that. We talked about the espresso as being the big callback at the end of Beverly Hills Cop that kind of shows the reality of being real or being fake in Beverly Hills, right? And Serge and whatnot. Um, sorry. So, Mark, I don't know if yep. you've seen Sorry to spoil Beverly Hills Cop. 
one, two, and three for you if you haven't seen them. But uh, but they bear a lot of resemblance to Tenet. I mean, I'll take it. I, I, I feel like I've already had that experience of seeing the movies, um, even though I haven't actually, you know, opened my eyes and had the cellulose beamed into them uh, directly. Um, but that was the next best thing, Pete. So, okay, so what are we talking about when we're talking about this, right? Like, I, I don't think we're actually insinuating that Christopher Nolan, like, either um, – uh, um, intentionally or unintentionally, like, you know, copy the plots or like trans- transcribe the plots. It's, it is possible, know. right? It, it is possible. Is pretty, I, <laughs> the scene main... where he talks to Michael Caine in the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's all like, it's an, it's an amazing find, Pete, for sure. Um, yeah, whatever. I think your, your main point for is, is definitely about kind of like the coldness or the lack of charisma yeah. uh, about this. But like, I think... Uh, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but like part of what I feel like you're saying is that Christopher Nolan is not nearly as like clever as uh, as he wants you to think that he is. Right. That's not necessarily because he copied um, some plot points over. And, you know, and also just generally speaking, like, let um, um you know, used a lot of James Bond spy convention types of things. Right. And that's that's all pretty intentional stuff. It's that like um, Christopher Nolan is giving you this like. Uh, intricate puzzle of a movie and it is daring you to solve it. And uh, you, I feel like Peter in a certain way, uh, orthogonally saying like, you know, this emperor doesn't quite have so many clothes or uh, <laughs> his clothes are a plain white t-shirt that we've well, seen before. I, I suppose is that kind of what you're getting at? I, that's one way of looking at it. And I certainly could have come to this podcast just being like, I just want to unload on tenant because I didn't like it. Right. Um, I didn't like I didn't enjoy the experience of watching it. And I have a bunch of thoughts about that. I wanted to give it a, I want to give it a little bit more room than just sort of bashing it and get a little more specific. So what I would suggest, I think, is that we talked about the complex time travel plot of Tenet. But like Tenet is also a cop movie. Right. It's also like a cop movie or an, a secret agent movie yeah. or a, or I guess what a secret a secret. uh officer movie or whatever like he, he's it, it has all these procedural becomes like elements. almost like a straight up war movie and like in a weird yeah uh, yeah it kind of escalates right from being like a detective story to being a to being a kind of spy story to being a, a war movie a war story and and all those things are being carried out um and and so a lot of the time that you're watching the movie you're watching one of these stories and it's one of these stories that that is devoid of a lot of the things that makes those kinds of stories fun a lot of the time, which you have to think is a stylistic choice and not just an inability to do it. Yeah, uh, certainly the perf- I mean, it would we, be funny. We spent a solid like you know fifteen years dissecting Christopher Nolan movies. Like we know his style. <laughs> it's a thing. It, it would be really funny. It would be really funny if like protagonist is like supposed to be funny, but the script is so mirthless that when uh, I really should make sure I, I have the uh, the cast up so that I can get everybody's name right. Um, because, you know, the uh, we could talk about the performance of uh, of John David Washington, but like John David Washington's performance is so purposefully and deliberately joyless in this movie. Mm-hmm. Right. He's like he is this force of nature, you know, very like really, really rational and analytical. Uh, he gets he, he gets angry. He gets the sort of like he gets the acceptable masculine emotions of like anger and indignance at other people trying to help him. Right. <laughs> like like the desire to not share his feelings. Right. Um, and and the sort of frustration at being betrayed by people he expects to comply with what he wants without him telling them. Right. Like he gets all those feelings, which are by and large not feelings at all in the sort of grand uh, the grand storytelling of things but no he's like he's played so controlled and it would be funny if the idea was that no this was supposed to be a a, a kind of more procedural relaxed kind of cop story and he just it was so devoid of jokes that he played it like that (laughs) uh like 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 the protagonist in tenet 
he felt meta to me. He felt like more of a commentary on a Christopher Nolan protagonist, maybe because it's called protagonist, so he's extremely meta. But it was like all of the things that kind of dehumanize Bale's Batman, you know, DiCaprio in, in Inception, right? All of these these things that are separate from their vital experience of of the character as depicted on screen. You know, we talked about acting, Matt, right? Like all the things except for that sort of juicy acting that are that are characteristic of these Nolan stories seem to be ratcheted way up in the protagonist. Of yeah. This yeah, that's a good observation. And let, let me uh, kind of backtrack a little bit what I said before about kind of, you know, lumping all Christopher Nolan movies into one big bucket. Um, of why they, of course, have a lot of things in common, um, like uh, the coldness and lack of emotion in this movie is really notable, as you just described, Pete. Um, and from what I was, I was understand as well, too, like his brother, Jonathan Nolan, his is was also his screenwriting partner for a lot of the movies that he'd done in the past, but was notably not involved. In oh, this interesting. One. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that little bit of heart that might have been in like Memento, uh, you know, or, or, Batman. or the Batman movies. Yeah. This, so so it's just Nolan. He wrote it. He did everything. Uh, I don't know if he's the only person who okay. got the writing credit on this, but I know that Jonathan Nolan uh, did not. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, he's listed as the only credited writer. Yeah. So uh, so can we double click a little bit on this like ridiculous uh, conceit of this movie that the main character is just straight up called protagonist? <laughs> like. He doesn't have a name. Other characters in this movie have names, but he doesn't. <laughs> I, it, it just strikes me as like kind of the most like like a pretentious, pompous thing that you could do. It's this is like uh, you know film first year in film school type of thing you do. There's some some jerk thinks that he's being so clever. It was like, oh, my character's name is protagonist, and this is a commentary on things. And Christopher Reed on Street does it in his like two hundred million dollar movie, right? Like, uh, is his head what I'm asking here, Pete and Matt, is is Christopher Nolan's head so far up his ass that that is what he did? <laughs> he thought it was being clever and meta by naming his character protagonist or is something uh, perhaps more interesting going on that we can uh, give him a little bit of credit for? Uh, well, I mean, Matt, do you want to I'll point out a couple other movies that do similar things, he's, right? He's a, I mean, he's not not the protagonist. He actually <laughs> he actually refers to himself. I am the protagonist as of this operation, you know, and I, I guess there is something interesting about the idea of, you know, you're sort of the star of your own story, like you you are the star of your own life. But when you kind of step outside of your life into this, you know, meta meta uh subjectivity of kind of going backwards and forwards in time and what you know when and who knows what when and like how all this is is constructed i there is something kind of depersonalizing um about it and it does it's of a piece with what pete said about all the kind of the humane parts all the kind of identifiable parts of the character being you know sort of stripped away kind of frozen away um it it's of a piece with that and so it it's not i mean it's as a choice i i agree kind of like okay strong choice like you'd have to do a lot to to earn that but it it's not like it doesn't resonate throughout other parts of the other parts of the film no not mean yeah i would say it is a joke part of i think why it comes off as so crass like it just it feels kind of terrible like you could look at movies like Fight Club or like Jet Li and Hero, right, uh, where the character has a similar sort of relationship. But those movies, uh, even Hero, which is also, you know, deliberately less fun than it could be, um, 
you know, you can you can at me in the comments if you really love the movie Hero. I wasn't a huge fan, uh, but but it's it's got a similar sort of semi mythical relationship with the person. There is a joke in his being the protagonist because the sense of protagonist is it's the person who I think moves first, who comes forward first in a play. Right. Is like the the protagonist in a Greek play is not necessarily the uh the 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 per, the act it doesn't or originate I don't think necessarily as the actor who is greatest or most important but I think it comes from the sense of literally the person who steps out in front of everybody first right uh, or kind of like draws forward draws out of the group to the front of the stage first and so it's a joke in the sense that he's the protagonist because he is the person who incites and creates the tenant organization. But but he can't be called the person who started it because he wasn't the earliest person involved in it. Right. Like like there is a Ouroboros kind of thing where he starts it and then other people started and other people started. And then like those people go back in time and then they get him and they, he he is he is caused by others in a sort of linear sense to do this thing. Yet he's still the cause himself. Um, and so there's a bit of a like, well, what do we call him uh, as he can't be the founder because he was recruited, right? Um, so he's the protagonist, which is great because it's a movie. Um, and I, I, but it, but it doesn't match. I mean, like with a lot of things in the movie, it's it's sort of like I get the idea that they're trying to get across, but then I think of the movie that I just saw, and I don't see a lot of places where that interacts with the movie in a particularly great sort of way. I mean, I guess it's a meta movie in the sense that it's a Brechtian alienated cop drama, which is sort of a critique of society. And our search for happiness, right? And and it's like, but is it really? I don't know. Uh, I guess so. Like, tough. okay, so let's let's take that as a jumping off point, right? Yeah. The 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 search for happiness in this is embodied by uh, the female lead, right? Cat, I think is her name. Who? Uh, congratulations, Christopher Nolan. You figure out how to stop killing every female protagonist. Find a way for her to live. Um, in this, <laughs> good for you. And, barely, and, and, barely, barely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Barely. <laughs> so what do we what do we make of her story, her storyline in this? Right. You know, she 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 has she has this criminal background. She's not an ethical player. She's married to this abusive uh, Kenneth Branagh, um, snarling Russian accented man. Um, and uh, and and she has a son who may or may not be Neil, by the way. Right. Which is right. a whole other tangent that we can go on to. Right. Um, so, like, is is she able to become a, a protagonist and kind of like, you know, take agency back and find happiness for herself? No. Why not? Is there, any, is there any indication that she does that? Uh, I, I mean, I guess what? I guess she makes no choices and she yeah. goes along with the plot and, and, and is able to off um, her horrible husband. So at least there's that, right. right? There's okay. So there's a couple of contradictory ideas that she expresses in some of her speeches. And maybe you can, you and Mark and Matt can reconcile them for me. So she's, of course, involved with the Kenneth Branagh character, whose name I won't look up. Uh, it's probably one of those words in the mythical square or whatever, right? Um, and he wants to end the world at the moment where he was happy, which was when he was on vacation, I guess, in Vietnam mm -hmm. with her. And she talks about that experience as her giving him happiness, right? You know, she is fully commodified <laughs> as as a as an object of uh, companionship and sexual gratification and kind of status. And that, like, in this moment that he is totally happy, it is something that she gives him. 
you know, which is sort of despite all the other things that have happened um, and relate and, 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 and they sort of what she gets in, in thanks for it is, you know, being totally blackmailed and being held hostage and being kind of party to the destruction of the world. And he asks her to leave her son. Right. Uh, which, again, might be related to the tenant plot. But if you read it as a. Beverly Hills cop character is awful, right? Like if it's like, you know, you have to leave your family and come live with me on the docks, right? Where I'm going to smuggle, you can be my mall and I'll smuggle art. That's like a totally kind of Beverly Hills cop thing to do. And that's kind of what Banneth Brana does. Uh, and she has these t- talks where she's talks about her son as her only source of happiness, right? She has no happiness anymore. All she has is her son. So she's able as to be a, a sort of impetus and vehicle for the happiness of others and she's able to kind of vicariously appreciate the happiness of her son. And yet at the same time, there's this sense where she's kind of wistful and she kind of wants to be happy, I guess. Right. Um, like, like, is, does she, does she, has she given up on the idea that she's supposed to be happy as a person? Like at the end, she's not put back into like herself. Stella doesn't get her groove back. Um, I mean, I forget whether she, does she, she sleeps with, with protagonists during the movie. Or not? No, 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 no. Because he keeps saying he hasn't done it yet, and there's this idea that they're going to do it at some point in the future. Um, but th- yeah, that line would would, would strongly suggest that they did. But no, there was no any sort of romantic or sexual. No, there's no, there's no the- nookie. It's actually very. There's violence, but no sex. Right? It's, yeah. So it's yeah. a good. It's a good American movie. But the you know <laughs> the um, I, he says that well, we haven't done it yet in order to wind up. Uh, in order to wind up Kenneth Branagh as he is, you know, trying to work him as an asset. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, so, but yeah, there, there is no, her release at the end of the movie is the release from the blackmail, which allows her to go back to being her son's mother. But there's no, I didn't suggest, see any sort of suggestion that she goes back to being happy for herself. I mean, that seems like a psychological journey for her the, that she would have to go on. That'd be very different from her journey of getting shot and then murdering her ex. The only suggestion is, I think, um, and again, not to get too bogged down in the ridiculous mechanics of the time travel uh, in, in this movie, the suggestion that um, when she jumps off the boat, she sees herself jumping off the boat, oh, um, diving right. into the water. Herself. So, oh, that woman is so, so free. Yeah, That woman is so free. So there's another copy of her that's like getting her group back and doing her own thing. Is that what's going on? Well, yeah, that she is the uh, that is that moment is described early in the film and like that. That's what she turns out. It's her. You know, uh, like, you know, turns out the, the, that heaven was the high dives that we made along the way. And that, like, um, you know, she, she, she is the one that she has been waiting for. But, uh, uh, but on the other hand, of course, she doesn't see what, what follows is an Achilles moment where she drags the corpse of her dead lover through the ocean on the back of her boat right like which is not exactly what people think of when they're like oh she's so free right she's so liberated as she like drags the bloated (laughs) saturated like blood drained husk of the villain from wild wild west you know behind I should, I should refer to him as something more esteemed than that. Um. <laughs> he's, he's no, he's, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, actor who works. You know, I don't, uh, I, I don't think, um, I don't think he would mind. Uh, but the, he's horribly miscast in this, right? Or is he? Or is he perfectly cast? Is is this movie better because Kenneth? Branagh, I shouldn't ask. I don't another know. Question. There is like he is like um, Christopher Nolan is one of those guys like um, like Ryan Murphy. Uh, who has a, a sort of repertory company, you know, and he is part of like Michael Caine, 
Uh, he is part of the Christopher Nolan repertory company. Like I think he appears in in Dunkirk, doesn't he? And so it's more. I don't know. I get the sense that there are there are just actors that he likes to work with that Nolan likes to work with, and that you know that's why he's in this movie. And so to that extent, he's sort of perfectly cast. Uh, all arguments about you know whether he's the right choice to portray this character, notwithstanding. So I guess, I mean, I know that we're in a, you know, kind of fixed time loop interpretation of time. But if we were in a uh, an alternate universe timeline, I'd love to see the one where that part is played by Michael Ironsides of the USS Ironsides. That would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Or Mads Mikkelsen. Right. Or like Eric Roberts, (laughs) because he's that kind of villain. He's like the one time I was with this broad and this this ocean is the only time I was happy. Right. Ever since then, I've just been shooting everybody that I want to shoot and being a billionaire and doing all sorts of terrible things. with No consequences. But it weighs heavy on my soul. Right. Like (laughs) Al Pacino in that part. Huh? Huh? Uh, Well, there you go. Well, it makes it much closer to being Beverly Hills tenant. Right. Which is uh, which is different than Tenet, right? <laughs> and we're not allowed to depart from the timeline. Um, but yeah, no, sorry. Yes, I don't know. I mean, Matt, I, I did you want to weigh in on this notion of like where do we arrive at with the um, protagonistra protagonistrix? Well, there. Right? Look, uh, what, what I'm saying, Pete, is there are more inverted bullets in the world <laughs> today than there are conventional bullets loaded in guns and firing right now we're coming out guns blazing in reverse whoop 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 so do they explain why it's really bad to be shot by an inverted bullet as opposed to a regular bullet which is also bad no it's hand it's hand wavy you know scientism like it's yeah. it's uh don't cross the streams level of uh That's fine. yeah That's fine and and that's like I actually like I appreciate that about the Christopher Nolan movies honestly like there I think what you sort of lapse into this scientist you lapse into this kind of Star Trekism right uh, where where you end up with like long speeches about minuscule disturbances in the underlying Decion field right if you don't. Uh, if you don't um, do it, like if you don't uh, go the Christopher Nolan route and make like an in inception, the dream machine is just a, like a, um, it's like one of those clothesline auto retracting clothesline <laughs> things, you know, or like a, like a fishing line that, but everyone like pulls out their, pulls out their thing. I don't know. Have you seen, have you seen one of those guys? Like it's a, like a vacuum cleaner cord that you pull it out and then it stops, but then you like uh, give it a tug and it like it, it rolls back up. That's like a know, seatbelt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it has like exotic technology, three or four, it has three or four of those lines, you know, all operating right. on that principle. And you like, I don't even, I forget even what you do, like whether you wear it like a wristband or whatever. And it's supposed to, it's supposed to do yeah. something or like, you know, in, in the prestige, it's a little more steampunky, but it's, um, a similar thing. It's really not, uh, not all that concerned with the, you know, the, the, particular how we do that and that's like i'm i'm uh i'm happy about it i mean i let that is one thing that i like about the style because what what he's saying is that it's not it's not really it's not really about that um it's not really about that it's it's about a kind of it's about a kind of meta theatricality that is very very self-conscious like very very paranoid about being perceived as a meta theatricality you know, um, the, the, uh, the thing that I've heard, 
um, kind of described in this way is that like in the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, um, they are not, uh, Bruce Wayne does not witness his parents being killed at, uh, the mask of Zorro. You know, uh, he does, he does it at the opera, uh, after the opera is the, you know, the tragic crime that, that results in his parents dying in, in, and, you know, he sees them being murdered. Right. And that like, you can't, he was like, well, yeah, you can't, uh, can't do this like deconstructionist, uh, movie within a movie kind of thing. Like, cause you'd, you'd have to like worry about the, the mask of sorrow. So like, it's everything he does is very, very, Obviously, kind of meta theatrical. Um, I guess meta cinematic is probably the more the more apt term, the more precise term. Uh, but he, it's the you know there is this like horror. I I I think like based on how how stringently you know he polices the the content of the film so that there aren't any of these sort of meta theatrical tropes in them like you know i don't know screens on you know or something like the idea that like the there's no hint that the dreams in inception are kind of like films you know there there's no hint in that like the uh the forward and backward is kind of like running a piece of film forward or running a piece of film backward and that's what um you know that's kind of where a lot of the the thematic or theoretical pieces kind of uh, kind of come together. And so, you know, um, so it's, it's, it is interesting. I, I mean, it's interesting to me to think about like, what could this be about? Because it is true that, or, or the, sorry, uh, one more example that the, the idea of, you know, telling the stories in the different time frames and kind of lining them up so that the narratives, um, Climax at the same time, rather than uh, strictly chronologically, which is what he does in in Dunkirk, right? Um, he achieves simultaneously climax, which is you know a, <laughs> like a, more power to him. It's it's very difficult to engineer that outcome, you know. But that like he's um uh but that like that this is about this is about in some sense the way that cinema um the way that filmmaking through editing through, you know, uh, all the tools of kind of film storytelling can is really about uh, time is really about manipulating time, uh, in, in particular ways. And, and yet that, that, you know, and, and yet, right. If this is his point, um, you would expect there to be some kind of humanistic tenet, you know, if you mm-hmm. will, uh, that, that undergirds what it is like that, that Christopher, you'd expect that like, okay, Christopher Nolan has something to say about the experience of being alive. Like the, the does what great art does and gives us some perspective on our experience, some perspective on our subjectivity, on our histories, on our, uh, lives, right. That, that, uh, we wouldn't have had without it. And it, it just seems like there's a, you know, it, it seems like the mystery box in, um, in inception where you open it <laughs> expecting to see it there. I, I suppose expecting to see a spinning top there and it's empty. You know, um, but that that's like a, 
that actually the box being empty is a plot point of of inception and someone emptied it and so my my whole uh i don't know my whole thing is is falling apart here so pete it's not it this is not the uh this is not the uh rumination on tenant that you wanted but uh it no, may be it the is, ruminate it, it may because it's not about the the protagonistrix protagonatrix but uh this may be the rumination on tenant that we deserve <laughs> well hmm. okay so from a film theory perspective right the idea here is that movies are images in sequence. They're either it's made a movie is made up of discrete images, and those images are played in a sequence. And the human brain, in seeing the sequence, gives sense to them and imbues them with a causality, right? Which is arbitrary because you could have made the scenes backwards. Right. You could have repeated the same one several times. Right. You could do all sorts of things in terms of what images are where. Uh, but the necessary link between them going in a certain direction and then time flowing in a certain direction and the human brain narrativizing them in a certain direction is all is all uh, taken for granted. Right. As, as a sort of arbitrary thing that we kind of skip over uncritically when we think about other movies. That's so. OK, just to ring the change, a couple of the things that could have been the moral of Tenet. Right. Like could have been the sort of big artistic point. Uh, of tenant one is that which is that you know it it does film show us something about the meaninglessness of believing that things only happen in one direction sure not really yeah okay but yes all of that all of that yes and yes to everything you're about to say i pre-ratify everything (laughs) you know everything you're about to say um but but i think there is a you know (laughs) i think there is a, a kind of a still greater question which is like this point has been well made by a lot of great artists over time and yeah. uh, time. What time is an illusion. Lunchtime, doubly so said so that like Douglas Adams, one of those great artists who, who made that point using those words. Right. And that like, what, why? Um, so I, I think like the, the thing I, I want to pre object to in sure, all of, of the, in all of the potential, uh, uh, morals of tenant or kind of our, you know, artistic st- mission statements of tenant is, uh, why Christopher Nolan and why now? You know, um, yeah. is this not ground that's been well covered? Uh, well covered by others and, you know, might, might not he turn his, his, um, you know, undeniable virtuosity to more, uh, to worthier pursuits. Anyway, sorry, well, I didn't no, no, mean no. to, to, I mean, I think what you're suggesting, I think if Christopher Nolan were to respond to what you just said and Mark, forgive me for monopolizing the conversation here. Um, cause I'm sure you, you have thoughts about all this, but if Christopher Nolan were to respond to your criticism, I think what he would say is he would ask rhetorically, is it worth it? That he would then suggest, let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it, right? Certainly the whole phenomenon of screwing and chopping that comes along after uh, is also part and parcel to the same project. But yes, um, that, that that's what I'm suggesting is that the storyline of Tenet as it relates to the meta cinematics of Tenet suggests that this could be what Tenet is about, but it is not. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and and I, there are other things in there, too. There's like the idea that this is about that this is a sort of uh, Faust part two story. Right. 
in that the notion is, can you find one moment that is so perfect that you would will it to be like the only moment that ever existed? Right. Which is kind of this sort of philosophical question that's posed uh, in, in by Goethe in like in Faust writ large. Right. Which is like and it's about kind of greed in the way that it's interpreted. Right. And human ambition and all this other stuff. And it gets very uh, crazy pants. And and it's not credible in this. Like, like nobody has any fun in this freaking movie. Right. Right. <laughs> Like nobody's if if the most important thing and if the most important thing in the movie were the sequencing of images and and playing with the way that images are sequenced, you would expect to see it played out, you know, more commensurately in terms of the characters relating to it in the moment and more interesting and more uh, not interesting, but more kind of like uh, narratively differentiated ways as opposed to the audience experiencing it as a sensory experience. Right. Um and then furthermore, yeah, if it's about perfect moments of happiness and this idea that we're kind of circling them, right, that this is like this is like what if, you know, what if Proust had a grappling hook, right? And it's like I went past the battle lines and I throw my grappling hook and I pull myself <laughs> back, right? Like if it's like the Great Gatsby is like we are all, you know, on these boats that are born into the past. But but then we can turn around and we can go to the party again and then we can turn around and then we can go to the future again. You know, like it's it's this if it's really about kind of nostalgia uh, except that nobody in the movie seems motivated to seek out actually enjoyable things. You know, there's no like sitting with Michael Caine and having a delicious, you know, brandy in the fancy British restaurant and it being the only time he ever gets to do it. Right. How cool would it be? Again, this is like Beverly Hills tenant a little bit more. It's like if he has the sort of really fancy drink with Michael Caine and then he goes to the bathroom and then every time he passes through that timeline, he stops to have the drink with Michael Caine in the. <laughs> in the fancy <laughs> restaurant and like you know, like michael Caine has a drink with like 20 of him or 21 of him because that's to be an odd number right uh, um <laughs> another brandy another, <laughs> another brandy another brandy another okay okay so i think i i got something here, so, which so, is that like so. okay the, the reason why people in this movie the characters in this movie don't have any fun is because it's not about them it is about christopher nolan and the audience okay i can't i don't mean to keep like bashing this uh, Christopher Nolan nail on the head over and over again, but this is my best theory for this is like, this is really his like insane pet project here, which is that like he set out to make um, the most convoluted conventional blockbuster movie possible. And he's like, it was like almost like his challenge to himself and to the studios is like how ridiculous um, and, and crazy of a, a, you know, spaghetti twisted plot. Can I come together? Uh, you know, uh, and offset it with uh, guns and action and pew pew whoop whoop. Um, like how how far apart can I stretch those things in terms of conventional action and an extremely unconventional storytelling? And can I get away with this? And uh, the answer to that question was, well, we won't really know because um, we were deprived of kind of like a traditional theatrical release of this to see if it could have actually um, you know made the sort of money that Warner Brothers was expecting from it. So that's my answer to it. Um, yeah. Is that the the, the characters in the movie don't matter because uh, this is a direct dialogue between Christopher Nolan and his audience in a way that his prior movies are not. I, I made a suggestion early in the podcast that I think is sort of related to these questions. Which is that I suggested that this was the Lego Batman movie for 2020. Oh, mm. yes, yes. Please, please un un unpack that. So this is my unpacking of that, right? Which is that, um, as you recall, you might remember the Lego Batman movie. It's great. Uh, <laughs> the Lego Batman movie came out in January of 2017. And as you may recall, is a movie about Batman being a puerile 
and uh, and kind of irresponsible, aggressive, one might say toxically masculine figure who has to learn to defer to the civic authority of a woman who has been put in a position of authority over him, right? And how he has to sort of gratingly accept that she's really good at her job and she's really great and he likes her and he's on her side and he needs to kind of do what she wants, right? And it read to me at the time as like, a triumphalist movie made with the expectation that Hillary Clinton was going to win the 2016 presidential mm-hmm. election, mm-hmm. right? It's it's like, we're going to come into 2017. We're going to have a female president. It's going to be all about like, how can we kind of reconcile with the old ideas of American masculinity now that we have a female president? Uh, and of course that did not happen. And uh, the, the, uh, the qualities of the Lego Batman character turned out to be the governing principles of the country for the following four years. Uh, not, not entirely. Lego, the Lego Batman character was a bit more, quite a bit more fun. Um, but the notion in Tenet that feels comparable is it's an interesting and elegant solution to a time travel question, right? It's an alternate solution to a time travel question, which is how, like, how can you have, free will, right? Or any, make any sort of meaningful choices, you know, when this sort of, the ink is already dry, right? You know, you travel back in time, you can't really do anything that would have changed anything to change the circumstances of you going back in time. And the answer that Tenet comes up with uh, objectively, like in terms of what they say, it's that, well, there's a lot of things that you can affect because most of the things that are really bad don't happen, right? Like one of the big speeches is like, a time traveler has power over things that don't happen because since they're never observed, they're mutable. And that speaks to a kind of interesting sci-fi concept, which is the notion that, you know, we all have really strong representative and, you know, uh, availability biases, right? And survival, survivorship biases, right? We, we see the things that are there. And so we're thinking, oh man, you can't change the events that happened, Right. Because we fixate on the things that happened and not all the things that didn't happen, which presumably, if they haven't been observed because they didn't happen, could be changed by a time traveler without creating a paradox. Oh, okay. And so this is sort of a movie about this looming dread, right, going into 2020 of some sort of terrible thing that's going to take place, right, which we are all kind of feeling at this point. But, you know, reassuring us that, like, you know, the deep state has it covered, Right, like it's like it's based, this is like a this is a triumphalist movie about the deep state uh, forestalling any sort of like terrible crisis that would have embroiled the human race in the year 2020, <laughs> <laughs> which of course uh, did not happen uh, because the world was struck by this global pandemic, which made the suggestion that we should be worried about abstract imaginary things more than things that are actually happening in real life, right? Or not actually, but things that were observably happening in real life seem a little quaint and silly, honestly. Like, why doesn't the tenant guy like why is it so unimportant for anybody to consider whether this time travel can be used to solve any particular problems such that it, for the main characters, it's only really like a conversation they have over the equivalent of beers, which in this movie is like shooting 12 people while sort of smiling. Right. It's like, you know, we're just hanging out, you know, and talking about like, do you think we could really change things? And it's like, well, we don't know. We haven't tried. Right. Oh, OK. <laughs> and it's like, all right. Right. Like that you haven't tried. It, it seems like a strange set of priorities that you have, but I guess you set up to fight this one thing that 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 uh, that that doesn't really that didn't happen. And and so many of the people in this movie are so fancy. It's all like yachts and fancy restaurants, and private planes, and you know, and, and like, and there's no interaction in this movie with anybody who isn't really fancy, right? There's no consideration of any sort of like human suffering that isn't related to supervillainy, 
Right. Um, and there's not even any particular pain because the main thing that people are facing is non-existence. Right. And so it's not like, oh, look at these people that are suffering because of this thing this bad guy did. Right. No, um, I'll say that the closest it gets to that, Pete, is at the end when Robert Pattinson says, you know, when Vampire Boy says, like, um, I think this is the end for me, but it's just the beginning for you. And he, he uh, like alone. <laughs> yeah. He's <laughs> um, carrying the water for a lot of this movie. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, on the, you know, for, to the extent that it has a heart, right? Like, yeah. I think he is, pro- he is providing, he is providing a lot of it. Um, I'm, I'm recall, I'm, I, I, <laughs> Call to mind a uh, a sick burn that the film critic Anthony Lane made about the the Star Trek movie, um, the the one of the new Star Trek movies where Spock comes through and like was doing uh, experiments with you know scientific MacGuffins like prepare the prepare the red matter uh, kind of thing uh, and um, and the. Uh, the um the reviewer made the point that like uh uh Zachary Quinto, Quinto was like one of the only people who i don't know seemed up to um all of the all of the star trek philosophical stuff and and said you know he alone he alone prepares the gray matter uh and that like um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's it, uh, God. I I realize in retrospect that it's not funny out of context, but the, <laughs> no, it's funny. The the you know in this in this one sort of uh, alone, uh, Robert Pattinson alone prepares the red matter, right? Like he he is the only one with anything resembling uh, a tragic sense, you know, because like there there are consequences. Um, there are consequences, uh, in terms of people's subjectivity, in terms, uh, you know, to reorienting their whole perception of time in themselves. And I'm, I'm surprised that, that Christopher Nolan is not interested in digging into this a little more because, uh, he made a good movie about this called Memento. And he made, <laughs> he made another good movie about this called Inception, you know, where the, the, once you start to kind of, conceive of your reality in a different way that kind of forces you to reinterpret uh to reinterpret your own subjectivity in a way that that decenters you in you know decenters you radically and kind of depersonalizes you uh to the point where you don't have a name anymore and are are only the protagonist like that has psychological knock-on effects which are the basis for for compelling drama you know and one of them is that like the, how Robert Pattinson, how you know the vampire. I mean, I guess he's immortal after all, being a being a vampire. But like how he sort of walks off to his death um, with a certain amount of equanimity, right? Because he has arrived at a conception of himself uh, that his story is is ending from one point of view, but but only beginning from another point of view because it's uh, you know he's uh, he and the protagonist have not even had their you know th- there is a whole series of buddy cop movies between the yes. two of those guys right that's alluded to that is latent that is implicit in these uh you know in the plot of tenet that that we don't get to see i think those movies might be more fun <laughs> than the movie that we <laughs> I want that to see those to movies see. too yeah, yeah they exactly. get animated they get like the animatrix Right. Like it's just like animated spinoffs that you, you do or something shorts. I don't know. It'd be fun. But that like, you know, and like when he shows up uh, the first time when when they meet the the first time in the protagonist's, uh, you know, lifetime, life experience, subjective timeline, um, 
he he shows up like this uh this character out of colonial fiction you know where he's wearing this like he's in the you know the hot humid climate but he's wearing this like light colored like linen or 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 seersucker suit right he's clearly drunk already you know and his hair is messy and he's kind of sweaty and unkempt but he's like charming and charismatic and stuff this yeah and is british he's this this character out of out of colonial fiction right that like out of like em forrester or like out of i don't know whatever like the yeah, you can see him on townsend's plus probably yeah <laughs> like, like uh, making making big beans in a dutch oven <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, but like, but <laughs> like, uh, you know, big beans in the Dutch oven and like, you know, a little bourbon in the beans, a lot <laughs> of bourbon in the glass. <laughs> like, and that like, this is, I, you know, I don't know. The, the, and it, it is, it is surprising. I, I am not familiar with a ton of the non twilight oeuvre of Robert Pattinson, but, um, you know, this, I don't know. This film gives me the idea that there's, there's kind of something to him because, uh, sort of alone right like he does things that are not not just entirely competence porn or not just entirely you know single-minded determination um single-minded determination plot machinery uh type of stuff so you know um i don't know good uh, good on you robert pattinson definitely becomes the second most awkward time his character has walked to his death <laughs> the other one being the oh, love story where uh, he dies in 9 11 <laughs> and that's the joke shaggy dog I, I once abused my family by telling them a long shaggy dog story that ended with and then he walked across the street and got hit by a bus and the moral is look bef- both ways before you cross the street and they looked at me having endured like 20 minutes of me telling some sort of long joke at them with with uh uh, you know, hate and contempt. And you're like, you're lucky house. I'm not Christopher Nolan. It would have been two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, all right. We have to, we have to leave it there. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Everyone who uh, is listening to the podcast, Mark, thanks for joining us. Uh, Pete, thanks as ever for, uh, for Mark, uh, we miss you. Yeah. Oh, podcast. It's great. great to be back. Yeah, I hope to be back more frequently when you're, uh, yeah, exactly. When, when your leave is over, we look, we look forward to that day, which has already happened. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I resisted the, um, I, re- I resisted the impulse to begin the, the podcast with the tagline, but we have already, always already said it together. Now, uh, please, uh, join us next week on the Overthinking it podcast or until then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't. doesn't. Oh, hey, Pete, we didn't uh, get to hear about um, your ideal viewing circumstances for this movie that also heightened your sensory experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I lost interest in it pretty fast. So I ended up I had two screens up and on one screen I had Tenet playing and the other screen I was playing Tekken, which if you put them in a square, right, the letters for Tenet <laughs> and Tekken, they formed this cryptographical puzzle that the monks used to share uh, way back when Tekken Tag Tournament came out in the ancient times. Um, you know, in Tekken, you can be a bear. 
um, <laughs> which is which which again has a bigger range of emotion. But no, I, in terms of of watching Tenet with your undivided attention, I resented the fact that it was necessary. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 